Our text for this morning is Micah chapter 6. Here's the word of God. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsel that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people, Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. And while we can find many ways to distract ourselves from it, I pray that you'll focus our hearts on it now. That we might hear your voice, that we might see our need and rejoice in the gospel. I pray that you'll change every life who comes across this text. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. All in all, I don't think that was a bad transition. So, some of the most popular forms of entertainment in our culture for years have been courtroom dramas. How many of you are courtroom drama people? Okay, Kelly is sincerely one, apparently. When you think of a courtroom drama, when you think of a courtroom lawyer, how far back does your brain go? How about Perry Mason? Nine seasons Perry Mason was on the air. 271 episodes. 
In the 1980s, when Mayberry was shut down, Andy Griffith apparently became Matlock and was trying cases left and right. But from the late 90s to the present, Law and Order and then the spinoff Special Victims Unit, right? Those have run for two plus decades. Can you believe that? That's a long time. But there's something about putting people in a situation where evidence is going to be examined and testimonies given and verdicts are rendered. It speaks, it speaks to us, doesn't it? It speaks to the human soul. And even in the Word of God, the Lord often uses a picture of a divine courtroom to show his righteousness in comparison to the people's rebellion. And the Lord will present evidence to show he has been perfectly, constantly, always faithful to all of his promises. And the Lord shows in these courtroom settings that his people, the ones who agreed to be bound by his covenant laws in the old covenant, they have refused to hold up their end of the bargain. And you find a scene just like that playing out as Micah opens for us the third and final section of this book. Now, by now, I think you know how this is going to work, right? We're going to read through the chapter. We're going to see what God had to say to the people of God around 700 B.C. through the words of Micah. And then we'll find three key points as we go through it. But we'll revisit the chapter briefly at the end to see what God has to say to you and me in the present day through the lasting truth of his holy word and his perfect ways. So, for you who are note takers, get ready. Point number one, remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. And look at verses one and two here. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Verse one here of Micah 6 calls on the people to listen up, to hear what the Lord says. And that phrase at the beginning, hear what the Lord says, that marks the beginning of each of the three prophetic cycles you find in this book because chapters one and two are a unit, three through five are a unit, and six and seven are a unit. And in each of the prior two cycles we've seen, what have we seen happen? God's people have refused to keep God's word. They've refused to be a just people. We've seen that the leaders, be they the spiritual leaders, the political leaders, they've chosen greed, they've chosen cruelty over righteousness and justice. And in each of the cycles, God has promised to bring judgment, his holy judgment on the land for the people's sin. But also in the first two cycles, we've seen hope for the future because God will never, no, not ever let his promises go unfulfilled. So let me ask you this. Do you think that's going to change? You think God is now going to stop being faithful? No, I don't think so. So here we go. Verses one and two. Micah presents for us a courtroom drama setting. God the Lord is going to be the plaintiff. He's going to present a case against Judah, an indictment against Judah, the covenant people. 
The people are going to be required to respond to the Lord's declaration that they have failed to follow God's covenant ways. Now, if you look at this, in this trial, who's going who's to witness the trial? Who's going to be the jury here? God calls the hills, the mountains, the foundations of the earth to pay attention. The creation of God will be the witness to the righteousness of God in the face of the rebellious people of God. Now, the idea of asking a mountain to stand as witness, the idea of asking a standing stone even to bear witness, that's not unusual. You guys ever hear the word Ebenezer before? Besides a Christmas carol, I'm not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge. Where do you hear the word Ebenezer in your life? Who knows? It, yeah, in Come Thou Found of Every Blessing and in the Bible. Exactly. When we sing, you know, here I raise mine, Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That's the name of a standing stone of remembrance from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. The Bible actually reads there, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now, the Lord has helped us. So when you sing, here I raise mine Ebenezer, what you're saying is, I am marking in my mind a point of remembrance that up until now, God has been a faithful helper in my life. And therefore, I know by his good pleasure, he will continue to be a helper to me. In Genesis 31, 48, Laban sets up a heap of stones to bear witness between himself and Jacob. In Joshua 22, the tribes that lived across the Jordan, they actually set up a copy of the altar in Jerusalem that it might bear witness to their connection to the people who lived in the land. Multiple places in the law, God calls down the witness of the heavens and the earth on his people. Deuteronomy 30, 19, how familiar will this sound to you? I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The point in all of those situations is that even if you people, we people, are fickle, even if we're changeable, even if we're malleable, even if we forget, the creation of God will always stand as an everlasting witness that God who created has always been faithful and true to his holy word. Thus God can call the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the earth to hear his indictment. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Now look at verses three through five. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, O my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God here starts making the case in the courtroom drama, right? Verse three, he asks the witness, how have I wearied you? Now, by the way, that's not a question I recommend a husband ask his wife. Because she'll have an answer. But God looking at his people saying, how have I wearied you? As God saying, how have I not upheld my part of the bargain? And we know God's been faithful, don't we? 
But God's going to demand that the people admit it instead of pretending that God has somehow burdened them unduly. Verse 4, God gives evidence of his faithfulness. He brought Israel up out of Egypt. There they had been slaves to a nation far mightier than themselves. But God moved. God sent Moses to Pharaoh. God sent the plagues on the land. God brought the people out of their captivity. God parted the Red Sea. God crushed the Egyptian army, drowning their charioteers under the same waves of that sea. God was faithful to save Israel. In the previous chapters of Micah, we also saw that the people of Micah's day had terrible leaders. Their governors and their priests were corrupt. Don't you love that we don't live in a land with corrupt leadership? Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you guys can identify. But when God brought Israel up, he gave them solid leaders. He gave them good, good religious leaders, good government. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, these people loved the Lord. They were faithful to the people. These, though they were never perfect, did justice, and they pointed people to the law of God. Then in verse 5, God points to his faithfulness to protect the people during the latter time of their wilderness wanderings. Numbers 22 and following, You read the account of the evil King Balak, the wicked prophet Balaam. You guys know the story, right? How many of you are only thinking of a donkey right now? Get out of children's Sunday school. Let's get bigger. (laughs) Balak, the Moabite king, wanted Balaam to pronounce a binding curse over Israel so that the Hebrews would be destroyed. But God would not allow the wicked schemes of these men to stand. Instead, God, even though Balaam's like, I'm going to yell a big curse over these people, God only allowed Balaam to speak words of blessing over the nation, which frustrated the king and benefactor, Balak. So the point, the point in the part of, this part of the case that God's making is he wants the people of God to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. No way, no way can Judah say the reason that we're disobeying is because God hasn't been faithful. God has always perfectly, completely kept his promises. God has shown the nation kindness after kindness after kindness. From Egypt through the Red Sea, From Balaam across the Jordan, God has always proved himself to be faithful and true. So the people, the people are without excuse. Now, if we know that the people are the ones in the wrong, and I think we got that figured out, don't we? If they get it at all, wouldn't you expect that the people would want to know how to be made right with God? Let's move forward and let's see what they ask and what God tells them. So point number two, submit yourself to the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. Look at six and seven first. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You ever been wrong? I don't mean a little wrong, by the way. I mean really wrong. Have you ever been really wrong? You ever, you ever made a mistake that actually hurt somebody? You ever say something that no matter how many times you apologize, you know you're never going to be able to erase that from somebody's mind? You ever break a trust and think to yourself, I don't know if I'll ever get it back. If you have, you probably know something about the mental process, the thought process somebody goes through when they mess up royally. Because one of the things you start asking yourself is, what can I do to fix this? How can I, how can I make things right again? You ever have that question in your mind? In chapters 1 through 5 of Micah, we've seen that the people of God have messed up royally. They've failed to follow the Lord. They've failed to follow His ways. They've been those awful oppressors that Marcel read about in the psalm this morning. And now in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, we've seen again, God knows that the people have messed up. They've got no excuse. They're guilty And everybody watching, the mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth, the Lord, everybody knows they're guilty. If the people are at all sensitive to the things of God, they're going to want to be made right with God. Nobody should want God to be their enemy. Nobody should want to face the judgment of God. Now again, we are talking here about the people living in Jerusalem in Micah's day. And those people know they've got a military threat from surrounding nations right now. The Assyrian Empire is a threat at present. The Babylonian Empire will be a threat on the horizon. Judah has been decimated already by previous military encounters. They've got no hope of defending themselves whatsoever. And now you know that this weakened state that the nation is in, it's because of the sin of the people against the Lord. And the people need to think that they need God's help. They need God's forgiveness if they're going to survive for long. And in verses 6 and 7, you see the people asking what they can do to appease God. What can they do to make things right with God again? What What kind of offering do they need to make if they want to get back in God's good graces? Now, I'm going to tell you up front, the people asking the questions of verses 6 and 7 are missing the point. They've failed to know and to understand God. They've failed to grasp the fact that sacrifices and offerings are not what God's after. God is far more interested in the hearts of people 
Y'all remember the time that King Saul disobeyed the command of God? God told Saul, go in and conquer this enemy people, but you're not supposed to take any of their livestock home with you. Saul, of course, did. And when Samuel comes to Saul and asks him why he did not obey God, why he brought these critters out of the land, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? Saul said, oh, I brought these out because I was going to sacrifice them to the Lord. And Saul didn't know, he didn't understand that God did not want or need his offering. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and as, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. God is interested in hearts that are for him, truly for him. Can I let you in on a secret? God doesn't need your sacrifices. You have never once added to God's abilities. You've not fed him. You've not watered him. You've not impressed him. God certainly is not interested in an offering given by somebody that has no interest in loving or knowing or following him. In Micah 6, 6, the people ask, what should they give as an offering to God? And they start off with things that at least make some level of sense based on the law. Should we offer a burnt offering? Should we offer a young calf? Will that make things better? That at least follows the law. Then verse 7, the offerings get a little more extreme. What about thousands of rams, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Is that going to work? That's like saying... Should I give God a dollar and maybe he'll forgive me? What about a billion dollars? If I gave God a billion dollars, what if I gave him a billion gazillion dollars? Will that help? What about something even more extreme? At the end of verse 7, the question's raised, should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do you think? Should I give my firstborn? Son or daughter? Both of them? I'm thinking about it. No, no, I'm not, I'm not. That's the people asking, you know, well, God, if I go so extreme as to offer child sacrifice, would that make up for my wrong? Yeah. Make two mental notes here. First, at least give some credit. The people realize they're in a situation where they are utterly helpless They're guilty, they know it, and they're powerless to fix it. But second, realize that these people asking those questions are not showing us that they know God at all. They should know that child sacrifice is not going to please the Lord. God does not like it when you kill children. This is why we are sweetly but intentionally uncompromising for the protection of human life from womb to natural death. They should know that a heart 
that believes God so as to, to, to love him, to obey him, that's what God's after. He wants you to believe in him and trust him and follow him. But then look at verse 8. Again, this is God speaking to the people of Micah's day. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That is probably the most well-known verse in this little book. Does that, that, that one ring familiar to you? Yeah. And that's the answer to what God wants of his people in Micah's day. He does not want their money. He does not want their animals. He certainly doesn't want them to sacrifice their children. Ultimately, God wants them to know him and to love him. So what does God require? You should know, O oh man. You who belong to the Lord, you have the law of God written down in his book. You've got to know this already. The requirements of God have not changed in the years from Moses to Micah. So verse 8, you get three things. First, God tells the people to do justice. What is justice? Justice is the right and proper application of the word and ways of God. Justice is the right and proper application of the word and the ways of God. You miss any part of that, you don't get justice, folks. Remember, all through this book, the people of Judah have been refusing to do justice. The leaders would not prosecute the rich and the powerful. Instead, they would favor the rich and the powerful. The leaders would not plead the cause of the poor and the oppressed, even when they were being wronged. The leaders would not act to make a person whole when that person had been wronged by somebody more powerful than them. As a nation... If the people of Judah want to please God as a nation, God says, do justice. Stop showing partiality in your judgments. Don't favor the rich. Don't favor the poor. Don't rob. Don't defraud. Don't oppress others. Treat people with the love of neighbor that you see in the Ten Commandments. Do justice. But then it goes further. Even as an individual, though, don't you think the people of Micah's day understood that justice is a good thing? I mean, do, do you guys think honestly that there's anybody out there who honestly says, I don't want any justice. I'm very anti-justice. I mean, you've got to be Lex Luthor at that point, don't you? What does it mean? We'll come to the next step in a minute, but I, I, I want to I, I talk about this for a second. What does it mean? A boss should pay his worker what he's agreed to pay them. A boss should pay their workers what they're owed, right? If I get you to do a job and then say, yeah, but I'm not going to pay you, that's a problem. A borrower should repay his debts. Isn't that true? If you say, I will pay you back this money at this amount of time, if you're going to do justice, personally, you do everything you can to pay that money back. A person should refuse to steal from or defraud another person. A shop owner should only use honest weights, honest measures, honest markings. You want to do justice? Never take from somebody else what is not yours to have by law. Right? Okay, let's go second here. Do justice, love kindness. The word for kindness here is actually the word hesed. The Hebrew word 
for covenant loving kindness. That's the word that God uses in the Old Testament when he describes his committed love for his people, his covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. In case it helps you, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the author calls it a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That's not a bad definition for Hesed. Y'all want to know how to please God? God says to Micah. Don't try to buy God off with empty offerings. Love God. Love God's love. Love loving God. Love others with the kind of sweetness with which God has loved you. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those things please God. Third, walk humbly with your God. If you want to get that phrase right, you need to go deeper into the word humbly because it has to do, this particular word has to do with walking carefully, circumspectly before God. So the first two requirements, do justice, love kindness, that has a great deal to do with how you, the Micah's people of Micah's day, how they live in connection to others. The last requirement has everything to do with how the people of Micah's day are supposed to serve God. They're to walk carefully. They're to walk thoughtfully before God. They're to seek to obey the commands of God. And just in case you're confused, the commands of God actually do include proper offerings and sacrifices for sins back then because God prescribed those for the people in the law that the nation might remain under his favor. So get this, please. God was not saying to the people of Micah's day, Don't worry about the offerings. Just feel toward me in your heart. God was saying, have a heart for me and treat other people rightly as you obey my law. The call to walk humbly before God is a call to walk in obedience. Now, as we said, gosh, I, I said a few weeks ago in my notes, it's been more than a few weeks ago now, True belief in God is mental assent that impacts your affections and changes your actions. God's telling the people of Micah's day, they're supposed to have changed hearts and changed lives that indicate a real faith if they wish to please him. They're not supposed to go try to make extravagant offerings as if God could be bought off. Micah's telling the people, don't keep on with your sin. Don't keep on with your empty religion. Don't keep on with your rebellion against God. He's saying to every single person, you submit yourself to the Lord. That's the only way for the people to return to God's favor in 700 BC. It's a call to get under the grace of God It's not a call to perform good works to earn favor. It's a call to run to God for mercy. Now, we're going to come back to this. There's a lot of law I'm laying on you right now. We will get gospel, okay? But I've only got so many minutes. Now, if you know the history of Judah from 700 B.C. forward, the days of Micah forward, you probably know this. The people did not repent of their sin. Did you know that? They never returned to doing justice, to loving kindness, 
or to faithful obedience to the word and the ways of God. And the judgment of God did fall on Judah. God allowed the Babylonians to enter the land, to destroy Jerusalem, to ransack the temple, to take the people captive for 70 years. And as you round out Micah 6, you're going to watch God promise that judgment that's going to fall. Point number three, expect judgment for the unrepentant. Expect judgment for the unrepentant. You still hanging in there, by the way? Doing okay? Okay. I want to be sure I didn't lose you because this is a long chapter. If you need to get up and stretch, I don't care. I can't see you. Look at verses 9 to 12. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to hear, to hear you. To, sorry, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. So now God is pronouncing the people guilty in the courtroom scene. And then he's going to pronounce sentence in the last section of the chapter. Verse 9 calls the people, listen up. Hear this hard thing, this true thing, this right thing that the Lord is going to speak. Verse 10, God is clear. He's not going to forget how the rich in the land have hoarded their own wealth. God says, don't don't store up this mountain of wealth for yourself and then refuse to do kindness to others in need. Certainly the people of God are not to amass wealth wealth for themselves at the expense of doing justice, of, of, of making whole those who have been taken advantage of. Then verse 11, God says he's not going to forget the cheating scales, the deceptive weights. That has to do with the way goods were bought and sold in the nation of Israel. There's no, there's no standardized measure in, at that day, right? There's, there was no bureaus of weights and measures in Israel. So if a businessman wanted to cheat somebody, he might mark a thing with the wrong weight. It's kind of like what companies are doing right now where they put the same size box up there but put less stuff in it. Little shrinkflation. You know what I'm talking about? That's frustrating, isn't it? But here's what this would look like in the old days. Imagine you came to me because you wanted five pounds of meat. So we get a balance scale out and I put the meat over here and then I get my five pound weight over here. And if they come out even, we're all good, right? Five pounds of meat, five pound weight, good. Now you can pay me the money we agree that is right for five pounds of meat. But what if my weight that's marked five pounds is actually only four pounds? What I've done is now cheated you by 20% but you've paid me $5 worth or five pounds worth of money. See the problem? Proverbs 20.10 says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. In Micah 6.12, God particularly points out that the rich in Micah's day, they are violent, they are liars, they use their words, they use their power to wrongfully take things from others that, they, that the others don't owe them. They oppress, they violate justice, they do injustice, they disobey the law of God. They will not rightly apply the word and the ways of God to their situations. And God says, I will not ignore this. 
verses 13 to 16 now. Therefore, what's going to come from this? I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourself with oil. Yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the sentence once we've seen the guilty verdict. Verse 13 God's going to strike them and make them desolate. Verse 14, they're not going to find satisfaction in their food. They're not going to be able to store up food for the future. Verse 15, they're going to sow but not reap. They will not get the benefits of the work that they do to grow grapes or olives. Their crops will fail. Even worse, they're going to have conquerors come into their land and take their crops away from them. They are in big, big trouble as a nation and justly so. And why is all this happening? Verse 16 reminds us they've behaved like the wicked, evil kings of the northern kingdom, Omri and Ahab. They behave as if they have listened to wicked, idolatrous counsel, and so they are destined for destruction, just as God brought Samaria down for their wickedness. The people who will not repent in Micah's day are destined for destruction, for scorn, for mockery, they're going to fall. So, does this all seem a little harsh to you? Remember, God was in a legal, covenantal, contractual type relationship with the people of Judah. They agreed to God's terms. They agreed to obey the law. They agreed to love only the Lord. They agreed that should they go against God and go against God's ways, they would face these exact kinds of judgments. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. But then Leviticus 26, 14 to 20. What are the consequences if they don't? Leviticus 26, 14 to 20 read, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. 
I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit." Did you hear that? The people knew the law of God. They knew the blessing God promised them if only they would obey His law. And His law is actually pretty darn simple. But they won't. They can't. They don't want to. And they rightly suffered the judgment of God. That's why this last point was we must expect judgment. For the unrepentant. Okay. Let me give you a couple of quick promises. Number one, a lot of gospel coming in the next chapter. <laughs> Just thought you should know. But this applied to Micah's day pretty clearly, right? I didn't tell you much that was confusing here. Do these principles apply today? Is there anything for us? Well, what's the first point again? Remember God's faithfulness. Is that still true today? Guys, God has been so very good. How good has God been? Where has God been faithful? How about Jesus? Can we go there? The Lord God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to rescue people like you and me from the guilt and sin that we could never escape on our own. Jesus lived perfectly so that he could grant to our accounts a perfection we never lived. Jesus died sacrificially to pay the penalty for sins he never committed, but we did. Jesus rose from the grave to give us life. Remember, God has been that faithful. And let that make you deeply desire to follow the Lord Jesus. How about the second point? Submit yourself to the Lord. How do we do that? What's the first way a person submits themselves to the Lord? Any guess? What would you say? We can play Sunday school. What's the first way to submit yourself to the Lord? Confession? More? Have a relationship. What did God command people to do? Two things to be saved. Repent and believe. You want to you respond to the Lord with faithfulness? You can't do it by behaving well. You do it by entrusting your very soul to Jesus and his finished work. Believe in Jesus. Turn away from sin and ask Jesus for saving grace. Stop thinking, I get to be the boss of my life. 
I'm the master. Everything goes my way. Stop that. Stop thinking that you get to determine what's right and wrong, what's good or bad. Just turn and say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Please save me. If you have genuinely believed in Jesus, then what? How about do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? You guys think that still applies to Christians? I think it sounds pretty good. But does doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God earn you something from God? No. It's just the way to have joy. It's the way to have life. It's the way to mortify sin. Let your life be marked by such a love for Jesus that it shows in the way that you treat other people and in the way that you love the Lord. Think about it. Where are you tempted not to do justice? Where are you tempted to apply things your way instead of the ways of God? Where are you tempted to take from others when it shouldn't belong to you? Where are you tempted not to help others in need? That's the way to honor Jesus. It doesn't earn you salvation, but it's a sweet way to honor the Lord once you have Jesus. And yes, expect the judgment of God on the unrepentant. Is that still true too? Yeah. God has been kind to us all. God has been merciful to us all. But anybody who will not turn away from sin and embrace Jesus will face the wrath of Almighty God. And worse than the judgment of God that fell on Judah... The judgment of God for a sinner who will not turn to Jesus is eternal. Turn from sin, embrace Jesus before it's too late. And let me add, be grateful Christians that our relationship with the Lord is a far better relationship under a far better covenant than that of Judah. Judah as a nation, had to behave well to remain in God's favor. But everyone who knows Jesus personally has already been given God's favor as a gift thanks to the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Savior. He has been victorious and perfect where neither Judah could nor we could. So thanks be to God for the grace of God we find in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, as we bow here, we ask you to take our lives and make them exactly what you want them to be. Give us hearts that remember your faithfulness. Give us hearts that desire to follow your ways. Give us hearts that would warn the world of the judgment that they face. Help us, God. Help us to be faithful to you. Not because we think our faithfulness is going to get us something, but because it's good. Because you're good. Because it's right. Because it's life. Lord, Have mercy on us that we would be able to love Jesus, be saved by Jesus, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. 
shine the light of your holiness into the corners of our lives that we might be able to turn from sin and follow you more faithfully. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.